Hello, everybody. How are you? Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Fine. Fine. Glad it's, to be here. It's such an honor to have you here. I really appreciate you coming. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. And um, I can't look forward enough to our discussions. I would also like to say that I really love your scarf. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so should we start off asking um, just a little bit of questions that we were- You should probably introduce introduce yourself. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, that completely (laughs) forgot. Sorry. Um, My name is Zoe Trey. I am a senior at um, Choate Rosemary Hall. Hi, my name is Isatu Diallo. I am also a senior. Um, And my name is Noah Delorme. I'm also a senior. And in the back, we have our faithful teacher, Mr. Harris. Hey, Mr. Harris, off camera. All right, let's go. Let's take off. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, we sort of structured our entire directed study, which is um, a semester uh, at our final term in, in school around your book, um, Sex Ecology Spirituality. And we've right. dedicated the last couple months to reading it and talking about it. And we meet twice or three times a week. Um, and it's just us three. Uh, and so we're huge fans of your work. Again, thank you so much for for coming. Uh, and so I guess my biggest question for now, as I was reading the entire book, was like, what was the process of writing this? Right. Um, it was an interesting overall process because I had been writing essentially a book a year for about 15 years. And then I got married to Treya. And 10 days after we were married, she was discovered to have breast cancer. And so our honeymoon was called off, or rather we spent our honeymoon with me lying on a cart in her hospital room with my legs hanging off about a foot or so. I'm a little taller than those carts were. Um, And for the next five years, I devoted myself to taking care of Treya. And so I really didn't write, specifically write anything at that time. I gave all of that up so I could attend to her needs. And the period that I had stopped writing was the period that postmodernism first really took over academia. It was about 19, early 1990s into 1995, 1996, 97. And so I ended up, it was all told um, about 10 years between writing a book. The last book I'd written was Transformations of Consciousness with Daniel P. Brown and Jack Engler. And it dealt with the growth in the upper left quadrant of the major stages of development, including the transpersonal stages of development, and things that could go wrong at each of those levels, various pathologies that could occur. Um, 
And then I stopped writing, like I say, for it was almost 10 years before I sat down and was able to start writing again. And the first thing I wrote was a book that I promised Treya I would write called Grace and Grit, which was a book she was working on, just talking about the personal changes that she was going through as she dealt with cancer and particularly other people's responses to her having cancer and the things that she had learned from that. And before she could finish writing that, she died. And the last thing she asked me to do was to write that book for her. And so I, I wrote the book, it's called Grace and Grit. Um, and by the way, that's finally been made into a major motion picture, which will be released, I think, um, this June 4th. So that's a very interesting um, sort of culmination of that period. But as I sat down to write, I, even though I had not written for about 10 years, my mind was still thinking and writing ideas and producing ideas as it had most of my adult life. And so I sat down to write Six Ecology Spirituality, and I noticed that in the first paragraph, I used about four words that weren't even allowed to be used in the academia run by postmodernists. So things like hierarchy were just categorically out. And so there went any sort of development because virtually every major developmental model in existence talks about hierarchies, but hierarchies are badly misunderstood. There are growth hierarchies and there are dominator hierarchies. And the dominator hierarchies are all the horrible things that the postmodernists say they are. But there are growth hierarchies. And most growth hierarchies are the ones found in nature. They're actually, they're not like dominator hierarchies, where the higher you go in the level in the dominator hierarchy, the more people you can oppress or disown or tyrannize with power or something like that. Uh, and, and those are true, and you have to watch out for those. But most hierarchies in nature are growth hierarchies or actualization hierarchies. And what they are is not the higher you get in the level of the hierarchy, the more you oppress lower levels. It's the higher you get in the level of a growth hierarchy, the more inclusive and embracing you become. So atoms to molecules, to cells, to organisms is a growth hierarchy. So that became the fact that I was jammed up on the first page by several of these types of concepts that couldn't, I couldn't use really threw me for a loop because most of the time when I would sit down to write, I've always just had a fairly complete, the ideas come down to me in forms of complete books. And I just sit down and I start writing 
and I just write them out without stopping. Um, but the problem here was that I couldn't get past the first page without having to stop. So I did stop and I did an enormous study about three years of postmodernism and what it meant and all of its major figures and what they were saying and so on. So I could get an idea about what was going on. And that became an important ingredient of sex, ecology, spirituality, because I wanted to include the insights of the postmodernists, but also be able to cogently point out their limitations or what I saw as flat out mistakes, like their confusing of growth hierarchies with dominator hierarchies. And so after going through all of that, then I sat down to write the book and it came out like most books do, just a steady stream of writing from beginning to end. Um, and that had included, it's a long book because it included sort of over that 10 year period when I wasn't formally writing, my brain was still stacking up ideas that were important. And all of those came tumbling out in this rather large book. Um, so that was the sort of real instigation, the real beginning of the book. Um, and that's what, um, I mean, I'm still very happy with it. It was written 26 years ago. Um, but I've gone on to write another 20 books. And I've included, continued to grow the integral framework. So it continues to include stuff. But virtually all of the ideas in SES, I still um, agree with quite, quite strongly. So we can discuss any of those that you would like to in any order that you like to. And I'll see if I can't attempt to shed some light on them. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yeah. Um, I apologize in advance. I sometimes have like a hard time sort of articulating um, my questions, but one of the things that I've been thinking about um, while reading and, and having just finished the book is like in the research I did while reading, I feel like integral theory is often defined as an organization of various fields and knowledge and knowledge traditions into something that like recognizes how they all play into each other. Right. Um, and in my experience of trying to explain this book to people, I feel like that leaves opportunity for the spirituality aspect to be neglected. Um, for example, if I was someone who came across integral theory and understood it to be just harmonization, I would find meaning in that. Um, and I would find solace in practices that seem to embody the theory on a surface level um, and sort of fall victim to the idea that it does not take development to get there um, if we all agree on an integral approach. And what did you say the relation of spirituality was in that situation that you're talking about? 
Um, I just met like, oh, I don't know if I know how to articulate. Um, Wait, did, did it mean that spirituality was to be included in integral or it wasn't necessary to include spirituality in integral, but just sort of work with its integrating the more common and conventional modes of knowing? Um, I think my understanding is that spirituality should be included or at least like is inherently included. Right. Um, and I guess my question is like, it seems like it in explaining it, it's easy for it to seem as though it's just like, let's all have an understanding of what it means and how to get to collective consciousness. Um, right. And that kind of like neglects a little bit the spirituality, I think in the way that it's sometimes explained, or at least maybe it's my poverty in articulating it. No. Um, so I guess, yeah, just like my question is, I think like on a personal level, or I guess not a personal level, how do I navigate that? Right. Um, well, this is actually one area where, although I still agree with what the essentials talk about, I have, well, I've added another dimension to spirituality, which I'll explain as we go through it. But in SES, spirituality is looked upon as particularly involving higher stages of normal development. They, so they start out at pre-rational, pre-verbal, pre-conventional stages, the young infant and so on. And we also call these magic and mythic stages. And then they grow through rational stages, conventional stages. And then there's a third growth that can continue, which is into transrational or the truly spiritual stages of development. And those stages and those experiences have always been important to me. Um, in part, I was introduced to spiritual experience when I was in middle to late adolescence, and I discovered Zen Buddhism. And I started reading like essays in Zen Buddhism by a scholar called D.T. Suzuki. It's really a brilliant series of discussions on what a Zen waking up or Zen realization, it's often called a satori, a Zen satori, what that really gave to human awareness. And it was such a shock to me, I had never heard about something called satori, or real enlightenment, or real awakening, or real waking up process. And I was for three days after I finished reading the book, I was just enraged. I was infuriated because I kept going around saying, why has nobody told me about this? The only kind of religion I had gotten was from Sunday school, Christianity, and God's this great male grandfather in the sky, and he has an actual son 
to a biological virgin. And uh, you're supposed to believe all of those myths. Uh, it just didn't really make sense to me. And so I had pretty much dropped all religion by that time. And then when I read about what was happening with things like Zen Buddhism or Vedanta Hinduism or even Christian mysticism, the purely mystical parts of Christianity, this whole process of waking up presented an absolutely radically new orientation for me towards spirituality, that it wasn't just regressing to childhood myths. It was actually taking the rational stage you're at and going beyond it into higher trans-rational realities. And this struck me as absolutely, first of all, it made sense. I believed it because there was no silly mythic, you know, things being said about it. And all of the experiences and stages that it talked about were actual experiences that many other people had had. I mean, Zen had been passed on for over a thousand years. And in its same, it managed to deliver Satori at each of its generations because it had discovered various practices and methodologies that could help you awaken this divine or spiritual or one taste or Satori experience. And so that was extremely interesting for me. And so starting in books, well, even before sex, ecology, spirituality, but certainly in a book like that, I gave a fairly solid grounding of the early stages of development based on experts in the field, like Margaret Mahler and Jean Piaget and uh, all these developmental psychologists to show what archaic, magic, mythic, and rational stages looked like. And combine that with um, theorists in anthropology, sociology, people like Jürgen Habermas, and so on, to try to give a foundation of developmental stages that we had all gone through. And some of the models of these things, for example, like Piaget's, have been tested in over 40 different cultures. And so far, there are no exceptions found to these models. They're, they're really cross-culturally important. And of course, each culture will have different surface structures that they add and their surface structures are different everywhere. But the deep structures, the actual pattern or form of the structure itself is what is cross-cultural or universal or appears the same in every culture that's been tested in so far. So I wanted to give that foundation of here's what's happening to consciousness as it continues to unfold 
in a, through a series of stages or waves of unfolding. And then when we get up to starting to move into higher and not conventionally recognized stages of awareness, I wanted to be able to give that as well. And it just turns out that in the transrational stages, almost all of them sound very spiritual. So you have people actually talking about, like when I talk about psychic, subtle, causal, and non-dual as four higher stages of transpersonal or transrational development, these stages um, have been gone through and experienced by thousands of people in the particular communities that study and practice these various stages of spirituality. So it became important for me to include, if you're going to have a comprehensive theory of human development, let's be comprehensive. Let's go from the lowest stages we can find to the highest stages we can literally find with believable evidence. And so that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so a spiritual dimension is central to an integral framework. Now, I'll tell you the one way that I have ended up modifying that a little bit. And that is, I took in SES, I took all of the higher transrational stages, the psychic, subtle, causal, and non-dual, as if they were in some sense, just a continuation of the same stage growth process that had occurred at all of the earlier and lower stages. So in other words, when you went from pre-rational to rational to transrational stages, those could all be outlined as part of one specific overall growth process that human beings go through. And so that generally means that in order to get to a higher stage, you have to go through all of the lower stages because the lower stages become components of each higher stage. So you can get, it's like you can get a cell, but you have to go through atoms and molecules in order to get to the cell. You can't get a cell by skipping atoms and molecules. That just doesn't work. And so the same is true of each major conventional stage of development. And I think is true of all stages of development. But what I became curious about understanding is that if you look at the population growth through the various stages of development, and let's say you look up to moving from rational stages into vision logic stages, or what I call centauric, the percentage of the population that reaches the very highest levels of development becomes a very small number of people. So in rational world-centric 
stages, anywhere from 30 to 40% of the population reaches those stages. When you get into what's sometimes called second tier or vision logic, centauric existential stages, the highest of those stages is reached by only 0.5% of the population. So it, it's growing and continue to grow as evolution moves forward. Um, when I first started writing about the percentages, um, the highest stage in the vision logic stages was indeed called turquoise integral, and it did have about a 0.5%. And the stage previous to it, which is called integral holistic, um, or just holistic teal, had about 3 to 5% of the population had reached it. We find that when any stage of development reaches around 10%, then there's some sort of tipping point in culture. And a culture starts to adopt the values of that higher stage that's now 10% of the population. So what happened when I was just always looking at the various stages, including stages that I had called the transpersonal stages, sometimes call them third tier, that they were even less than the 0.5% of the turquoise integral stage. That is, if the theory was to be carried through in one coherent sweep, the whole point is that the, high, the higher the stage, the fewer the number of people there are. And that's true for everything. There are always fewer molecules and there are atoms because molecules include atoms. So there'll always be more atoms and there are molecules and there'll always be more cells then there are molecules because cells include molecules. So for every one cell, you have maybe a hundred molecules. So that each higher stage contains fewer people at it. But did you have a question? I was just going to ask a question about how you measure the number, like the percent of a population that has reached right. that level. Right. There are about, um, one to two dozen different well-accepted models of development in today's academic world. But each of them tends to focus on what I call a different line of development, I, I sometimes called multiple intelligences. So Piaget focused on cognitive intelligence, Kohlberg focused on moral intelligence, Maslow focused on needs, intelligence, and so on. So each of those models has slightly different ways that they measure how a person is at each level of their line. 
So if you're at, at uh, Piaget and you're measuring the stage of development from uh, sensory motor to pre-operational, the concrete operational, the formal operational, there's simple fill in the blank questions that you can answer and see how well you do on that test. And then they can determine what general level of development you're at using that test. And so that's how we determine what percentage of a population is at a particular level. But the point is that since each of these dozen or so models of development, whether it's Lovingers or Kohlberg's or Keegan's or Piaget's, because they have slightly different and the lines themselves can develop at independent rates. Some of these lines of development will be much more developed than other lines. And so measuring the population of a particular group of people that's at each stage will vary depending on which model and which test is used. So I, when I say um, turquoise was at 0.5%, that was using a cognitive test of development. Some others might show uh, not, it won't differ greatly, but some others will show, well, actually we have 1.5% at that level. And others might say, well, actually it's about 0.25%. So they'll, they'll vary, but not very much. But that's how we tend to do that. Um, but one of the problems was that if the percentage of vision logic, high vision logic achievement is, let's say, 0.5%. The problem is we have polls that taken by just a Gallup can take these polls or Pew, just large polls of a large number of random Americans. We find that of some 60% of the people report that they've had some experience of cosmic consciousness or unity consciousness. They have had an experience where they feel one with the entire universe. And that's 60% of them are having that. And if that is really at a higher stage, than vision logic, it, it, it wouldn't fit. You can't go through 0.5% and then at the next stage have 60% experiencing it. it. It's just not right. So I started dividing the integral framework into several different aspects and several different um, types of practices that were necessary in order to get in touch with that integral aspect. So for example, getting in touch with all four quadrants 
and spending some time to learn about all four quadrants and how they're behind so many different things in the world, including first, second, and third person pronouns that you find in all languages. Those are the four quadrants or the big three. Um, Habermas's validity claims are the quadrants. And so learning about all of that, because most people don't realize they have all these different dimensions available to them. So when you learn that and actually start to incorporate it into your life, we call that showing up. Now, if you have, and that's one area, if you have a, an actual experience of growing up or going through the stages of development, so that would go from sensory motor to pre-operational, the concrete operational, the formal operational division logic, to the extent that you actually grow through all of those, we call that growing up. And then we distinguish that from the third process, which is called waking up. And wakening up is exactly the pathway or the experience of taking up, let's say, a meditative discipline until you actually wake up, have a Satori experience. And what we find is that that's very independent from the stage of growing up that you're at. And so we took all of the higher psychic subtle causal stages of transrational development and just move that over to a different dimension, which we call waking up. And it turns out that you can do all of these. We also have cleaning up, which has to do with any psychotherapeutic process that you might want to go through um, and opening up which means taking into account all of the multiple intelligences that you have. So, but at waking up and growing up, because these are independent, you can have people that have grown up all the way to a vision logic level and never had a single experience of waking up in their life. And likewise, the traditions of waking up Zen, Vedanta, meditative, con contemplative traditions all over the world, none of them are aware of any of the stages of growing up. So you just don't have any, not literally, not a single great tradition or path of liberation or meditative system that has an understanding of the stages of growing up. So you can be quite evolved in waking up, which by the way, still goes through the same stages that used to be just the upper end of growing up. So waking up still goes through stages of psychic to subtle to causal, the turia to non-dual. But you can have people that have gone virtually all the way through that series of waking up stages and still are located at rather 
mediocre stages of growing up. And we find this all the time with great mystics who seem to have this great sense of oneness with everything, but they can still be emotionally quite childish. Uh, and they can also have shadow elements. Cleaning up is different from growing up, and it's different from waking up. So all five of these areas showing up, waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and opening up are all five important areas of an integral overview, but they are all relatively independent. You can advance quite a bit on one and not at all on any of the others. And so we find that to be, um, that has a great deal of evidence now. And um, a lot of tests have been done to demonstrate that. So for example, in here in Boulder, they did a, a group of tests where they took individual teachers who were regarded as quite enlightened. And everybody sort of recognized who they were and so on. And so they then took these enlightened people, people that had progressed quite substantially on the waking up dimension, and they gave them tests across a half dozen multiple intelligences to see how far they had grown up. And what they found was, with virtually no exceptions, no matter how high the teachers were on the waking up scale, all of them scored absolutely average on the growing up scale. And these are all the gold standard tests that were given, the Piaget tests, the Kohlberg tests, Lovinger tests, and all that. And they all came across exactly average. So getting a great deal of waking up won't necessarily draw you up in terms of growing up. And it also won't do anything for cleaning up. You have to address that as a separate issue. Um, so this was um, a bit of a rambling response to um, your question of spirituality and its relationship to um, the overall integral framework. And what my own sense about these five different areas of showing up, waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and opening up, is that all five of them are important and need to be included in a true integral or comprehensive approach. And the sum total in each of those areas gives you a particular wholeness. I mean, so when you wake up, you have a sense of wholeness with the entire universe. And when you grow up, you have an increasing sense of the increasing number of perspectives you can take at those different levels. So you go from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integrated. 
Um, but notice that the stages in those two are very different. So the stages in growing up are, to put them in simple terms, archaic to magic to mythic to rational, the pluralistic, the integral. But the stages in growing up or in waking up are gross to subtle to causal to turia to one taste or ultimate unity consciousness. So you can see that they don't really sound the same at all. And they're not the same at all. But because learning one of these five wholenesses won't tell you about any of the others. And this is one of the most shocking recent discoveries in a sense that has become obvious. Um, again, you can have a complete waking up and it won't help you get a growing up wholeness. And because of that, you want to specifically look for the wholenesses in all five of these dimensions and include all of them consciously, look to bring them all together. And so you can see this is, uh, in a sense, it's a, it's a continuation of the fundamental aspects laid out in SES. But by pulling all of these areas of wholeness together, we create what we call a big wholeness, simply because that's a big wholeness that contains all of the five smaller wholenesses that each of these areas give you. So um, that increasingly strikes me as an important addition to um, the framework that was outlined in SES. But, Thank you so much. Yeah. That's crazy to um that's like a whole new chapter to think <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. It is. Um but off of that, I do have a question. So my question coming in was um can you achieve higher consciousness without consciously trying to? Or, or I know in the book it mentions like a great thing for achieving that causal or non-duality um a great thing in that journey is to have a group of people around you. Right. Um, but now with this new information, my question is for waking up, how much of that can be done? Is it possible for any of that to be done unconsciously, like without intention? Could somebody end up a higher consciousness being without practicing, meditating every day? Um, yeah. Yeah. To, yes, mm -hmm. um, to directly answer your question, yes, it's possible, mm -hmm. but it becomes a little bit less probable. It's a little less likely that it will happen. But there are plenty of cases, and many of the great mystics in the West are ones who had um, an individual awakening experience, and they could have awakened to really any of the five major types of mysticism, um, gross, subtle, causal, turia, or non-dual. Um, but it is a little bit harder, and it usually happens to them unbidden. I mean, it's mm -hmm. sort of, they're kind of surprised by it. They're walking through the woods one day, 
and there's the sun above them and they see that and they're walking on the earth and they feel that maybe they're walking through the woods and they feel that. And then all of a sudden, pow, they have this extraordinary awakening experience to a non-dual ultimate unity consciousness. And all of a sudden, their self disappears. They're one with the sun. They're one with the trees. They're one with the earth. They don't look at the mountain. They are the mountain. They don't look at the clouds. They are the clouds. There's just this profound oneness that overcomes them. And then if they're writers, which many of them were, then they'll write about that experience and they'll talk about it and they'll say how important it is. But the number of people that then have that same experience just from reading this person's account of it is usually not very high. Um, and so what we've found is that as people have had these experiences, they've tended on average, not always, but on average to draw together with other people that have had these experiences. And then often the first person that had the really profound awakening experience becomes the teacher and attempts to give guidance for the type of meditation or the type of mental attitude or exercises or practices that you can do that will try to open you to this grand unity consciousness. And then those, to the extent that they take, are passed down from generation to generation. And so that happened in Zen, for example. The first person to have a real Zen-like Satori was Bodhidharma about 500 AD. And the same insight has been passed down unbroken all the way to the present Zen masters today who transmit that same Satori, that same universal oneness, that same being one with everything experience. And so that tends to be the reason I would say, like in SES, when I would talk about it, I would say, and done in a community of other practicing mm -hmm. um, practitioners, simply because I was sort of reflecting what normally happened historically. Although, uh, no, it's to repeat, you can definitely have any one of these experiences on your own at any time. And there are even certain mystics that will then say, okay, and then I knew I had to take up a practice to keep that alive every day. And they would do it on their own. And often, if they really did it extensively, and they first started out at, say, a subtle level experience of oneness, and they kept practicing, then they would actually have a causal level experience. And if they kept practicing, they'd have a non-dual experience. And so those are definitely possible. As I say, they're just not as likely to happen. And if you're really serious about wanting to have a Satori-like experience, it's best to probably try and hook up with some 
community that's practicing either mindfulness or Buddhist meditation or Vedanta mantra meditation or even Christian mysticism. I know a fair number of terrific Christian, almost saints, like St. Father, um, St. Thomas, and he, in his lifetime, created over 300 meditative schools worldwide where people could come and practice his form of meditation, which was generally called centering meditation. And so he was a perfect example of somebody who had this experience and then wanted to transmit it and so created 300 schools. And I knew Father Thomas, and he really was, to the extent that it, this word makes any meaning, he was a living Christian saint. I mean, he really was. Um, and you could just feel it radiating off of him at all hours of the day or night. He was plugged in, and you could really notice it. So if you're interested in Christ and centering Christianity, um, I'd recommend looking up Father Thomas on the net and finding a local one of those that you could go to. If not, Zen still works great. Tibetan Buddhism is still probably one of the most complete forms of practice of waking up. Um, and you can check one of those, or any of the other ones that um, have some efficacy. I'm um, Mr. Harris off camera here real quick to follow up on that. I'm so curious if you are familiar with people like Tony Parsons um, and like certain people in um, contemporary non-duality scene where they, they sort of make, <laughs> it, it seems a little bit almost arrogant where they're like meditating in itself and any type of contemplative practice by its nature frames things in a dualistic framework because it implies that there is a separate seeker right. who is looking to achieve this union. And if you're doing, it's like any of those kind of practices, then you are actually reinforcing the dualistic stance. Right. Um, yeah. Um, yes and no. Um, they're stating a position that you're allowed to state if you are so-called, quote, awakened. So if you are awakened to the real self, then you can speak from that. And what you'll say, if you're a Zen master, for example, you'll say, enlightenment cannot be achieved. Anything you're trying to achieve is will not get you enlightenment because the very attempt to achieve enlightenment presupposes that it's not present right now. And the whole point of the enlightened traditions is enlightened mind is 100% present right now. If you bring it into existence, then it has a beginning in time. It's temporal. It's no longer timeless. So you can't even do that. So you can make those kinds of lecture statements and you can put everybody else down when you're doing it. But the fact of the matter is there's a real paradox of instruction. 
And the paradox of instruction is that you need a Satori in order to realize you don't need a Satori. Mm -hmm. So even hearing that, oh, you can't seek it, it's all here and now, your mind, your present mind right now is 100% enlightened and it cannot be achieved. You're hearing that is one thing, but there is a difference between just hearing that and actually realizing that. So from just between me spouting off these words and you having an actual experience of, whoa, I get it, my pure, true witnessing self is already present, is already active, and is already enlightened, that's a direct experience. And when you have that, then you'll be able to talk from that vantage point. And you'll realize one of the first things that's realized with Satori is that as strange as it sounds, you'll realize you already knew, you always knew what you're realizing. One of the most common reactions that people have when they first have Satori is first great tears, God, I'm finally awake, I'm seeing reality. But the second thing they realize is, wait a minute, I've known this forever. I've always known this. I've always been enlightened, and now I'm just seeing that I always knew I was enlightened. So that's what I mean by the paradox of instruction is you sort of need a Satori in order to realize you don't need a Satori, if that makes any sense in, in yeah, terms yeah, of um, so gonna Yeah, I was going to ask um, a question about, so you basically outline in your book about how um, you can, like, sorry, we had a lot of conversations about um, the ways that we have all in our own lives as students been able to like sort of take this third-hand perspective mode on a lot of our own situations and a lot of the conflicts that we see happening within the country and sort of analyze them um, with fresh eyes, knowing all of the kind of terminology that you outline and the kind of um, paths of development. And you can sort of see in certain um, groups or like movements and like, okay, this is um, definitely magic mythic kind of <laughs> thinking, uh, stuff like that. Um, so how do you think that your work in SES and beyond can help um, people, especially in America now, become better activists right. or effectively uh, make change? Right. Well, the ultimate goal, um, if I could state it this way, is to change the educational systems. Now, that does sound fairly utopian and quite far out. And I'll give you a, um, a version of what each individual can do to help. But just in terms of a bigger picture, getting actual, well, educational, particularly the humanities, right now is stuck in a postmodern, relativistic, pluralistic mode. And about 23% um, of the population 
is at the postmodern pluralistic relativistic mode and it has dominated education and it did it fairly quickly because that comes from their teaching of a worldview that does come from the postmodern pluralistic relativistic stage. In 1959, the percent of the population in America that was at the postmodern pluralistic stage of development was 3%. By 1972, Jacques Derrida was the most frequently quoted academic writer in America, and the percentage of population that was at Green had moved to about 23 so, and then from there, they started taking over the humanities and education. And as soon as they had done that, which they completed fairly quickly, they started moving it down the wokeism. They started moving that down into lower and lower grades. So at age five now, and many um, early grades of education, white kids are taught that they have white privilege and white supremacy, and they're responsible for oppressing other races, other ethnic groups, other classes. And I'm not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with that, what I am pointing out is how quickly that what we call the green pluralistic stage took over the entire educational system from top to bottom. And that could seem fairly depressing because they also in subsequent work we refer to, following Claire Graves' work, we refer to stages that are first tier and stages that are second tier. And the stages that are first tier are archaic, magic, mythic, rational, and pluralistic or postmodern. And the definition of a first tier stage is it thinks that its truth and values are the only real truth and values in existence. Everybody else's are goofy, wrong, childish, misplaced, but they're not real and they're not worth giving much credit to. And so that green postmodern stage is the highest of first tier stages, but they're still a first tier stage. And what's called second tier are the integral stages, stages of vision logic. And we call them holistic teal and integral turquoise, just to give them some names. And the sum total of the population that are at those second tier stages is now around five to 7%. When that reaches 
if it's the same thing has happened as it happened every time in history when we hit 10%, there's a tipping point. And the values of those higher stages start to, to seep down and to saturate the entire culture because this 10% stage is now the leading edge of cultural evolution. It's the highest stage that cultural evolution understands. And this in SES is what I refer to as vision logic. And I would always say, it's coming, it's on its way, it's not here yet, but it's right above rational. And rational includes what we call orange rational, and it includes green pluralistic rational. So, um, those stages, when the particularly green, with its which has a multi-systemic, a meta-systemic capacity, so it can reflect on the systemic third-person perspectives of the previous rational stage, and can start to differentiate them into multiple different cultures, because what orange rational stage tends to produce are uniformly similar systems around the world. So with orange rational chemistry, for example, there isn't Jewish chemistry and Hindu chemistry and Irish chemistry. There's just chemistry, universally uniform. Well, when the next stage, the pluralistic postmodern stage came into existence, it brought, it had a capacity to reflect on that previous stage. And so it could differentiate all those uniform systems into multicultural units. And it would say, oh, all of those multicultural units have something equal or important to offer us. And so that tended to create things like, well, since all cultures are differentiated, but they all have equal value because it really can't integrate them into growth hierarchies where you could say, Okay, some cultures are egocentric, some cultures are ethnocentric, some cultures are world-centric, <clears throat> any of that. By default, it just proclaimed that all of them are equal. And that's the egalitarianism, diversity, multiculturalism. That's what it's the central values of postmodernism, wokeism are equity, diversity inclusion. So, but my whole point in bringing all those up is that the only item on the horizon that looks like it can reintegrate those retribalized fragments that the postmodern brings up and with its multiculturalism, since all of them have an equal value, then you get the values of multiculturalism and egalitarianism and equity and so on. But although they can 
differentiate them very carefully, they can't, they don't, the postmodern mind doesn't have enough power to integrate them. That's what comes from the leap to second tier, <clears throat> which Claire Graves called monumental and a cataclysmic leap of meaning. And what second tier can do is take all of the differentiations that the green postmodern stage created and can actually start to integrate them, pull them together into unified systems. And that appears to be a major force that will help reunify the extremely polarized and retribalized world of identity, politics, and all of those sorts of inherently divisive moves that we're now seeing. But I wanted to mention all of this only because no matter how right or wrong some of those ideas might mean, the takeaway from postmodernism in my mind is, as I said, the incredible speed with which they entered academia and took over academia. Um, and it moved it out of orange, rational thinking and moved it into green, pluralistic, relativistic, multicultural types of modes of thought. And that happened very, very quickly. Um, the extreme postmodernists, they entrench retribalization to such a great degree that they don't even think that they have to discuss their ideas with people who disagree with them. So on colleges, what you often find is, particularly if a Republican, let's say, is going to give a talk, they'll be shouted down. And the heckler's veto is used to simply cut off all discussion whatsoever. Um, what I look forward to is in the coming future, and as I've said right now, the sum total of the stages at second tier is somewhere between five and seven or eight percent. I look forward to that becoming a 10% tipping point, which will then take the cultural leading edge away from postmodern relativistic differentiated stages and give them to the integrative pulling together, uniting, synthesizing, and systemic stages of second tier. And that I think is very, very important. And particularly given that Green has demonstrated how quickly academia can in fact be taken over by an idea I think we can look to see the same thing happening when people move into actual integral stages of development, because it's going to give them so many benefits that they hadn't previously had, such as a, a cooling down on polarization and a cooling down on retribalization 
and a cooling down on these ethnic warfares that are just have become insane. And so I'm looking forward to a future where we'll get some sort of integral cultural leading edge. In the meantime, what can an individual do? And the only thing that I can think of is when you hear somebody state a view that because of your understanding of SES or because of the conversations we're having now, you have a different view than what they're presenting then my recommendation is in, in the very gentlest ways possible, not mean or aggressive or attacking, but just in the gentlest ways possible, um, saying, well, have you thought about looking at it in this way? Or aren't you getting a little tired of all this fragmentation that we're having in culture? Wouldn't you like to see it brought together? Well, developmental studies indicate there's an actual stage where that happens and it's lying right ahead of us. And so we can move towards something that works towards that integral orientation. And I know that that's not um, a specifically easy or wonderful solution to what anybody can do, but it is uh, a bit of an indicator. Um, you can also throw in um, things like, um, you can also try mindfulness meditation, um, because that acts as a very powerful recentering of the brain itself. And it, people that practice it seriously get a very sort of integrated sense of being and self, and certainly mind and body. So I think that can also be something that you can recommend to people. Thank you. So I had like kind of a question about relativism that, that ties into like, I guess the self and what I've been hearing a lot lately, which is that reality is relative. Right. Um, which I understand to be like for myself, like I am not what I think I am and I am not what you think I am. Right. I am what I think you think I am, right. um, which in my understanding is inherently egotistical, but it's also like an understanding of reality as constituted and so I'm just kind of wondering what you think about that and also the idea that you kind of have to be like, you kind of have to have an out-of-body understanding to reach awareness. Yeah. Um, well, relativity is, um, unfortunately, it's a very confusing topic because it does come into existence. And it just we'll just say the general meaning of relativity and we'll explain exactly what we mean as we go on. 
But general relativity as a general understanding does come into existence. And particularly, well, it starts with the rational level, but it particularly comes into being with the postmodern relativistic level. And, and it's often called the relativistic level because it understands everything as being relative. Um, and in a sense, that's very true. But what we have to be careful about is the very picture of everything being relative is itself held in a very certain way with a great deal of certainty. So in other words, if you say, well, you've got, that's just your relative view about it. And I'll say, well, are you sure? I mean, are you holding relativity in an almost absolute fashion? Because that's what tends to happen as people start thinking about relativity. They get onto it at first and it looks like, oh, this is exactly correct. Uh, everything is relative. But that viewpoint itself is not held in a relative fashion. So people that believe that will say, for example, well, there is no truth. There is no objective truth because everything is relative. And all you say, well, so are you saying it's absolutely true that there is no truth? <laughs> and they'll say all perspectives are relative. There's no absolute perspective anywhere. They're all relative. And we have to understand that. And you say, okay, so do you believe that that is true for everybody? Because if it is true for everybody, you've got a universal truth. And your universal truth is that everything is relative. And I'm saying it's fine if you hold a relative truth, but realize that you're holding it with a great deal of certainty. And that's because awareness itself always presents what is arising in its own field. It presents that as with quite certainty, quite a bit of certainty. And so as long as you have an awareness, you are absolutely grasping what it is that's in your awareness. You believe that that is true. So when you hold relativity as a general idea, just realize you are holding it and you're holding it as being completely true. So relativists will come along and say, well, all cultures have different truths and different values and different meanings. And you'll say, why? And they'll say, well, because the mind had, makes pictures of things and those pictures depend upon interaction with other pictures and they depend upon their context and so on. And so you'll go, okay, I agree with that. Now you're saying that's the reason that everybody in different cultures has different ideas. So what you're telling me is that that structure of mind is the same for everybody. And that's why everybody produces these different ideas. 
So in other words, what the relativists are claiming is true of the mind, they're claiming is true for all people in all cultures, everywhere, at all time. In other words, they're holding it absolutely with an ultimate certainty. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank yeah. you. I do have, I don't know if they're t two separate questions, but... Yeah. Um, how does or can integral theory or these ideas um, help somebody? I know you mentioned the um, opening up and oh, cleaning up. Yeah. Um, can this theory help somebody with substance abuse or something like that? My other half of this question is how we've talked about this in our discussions. Um, how can you convince people of a poorer class or people considered less privileged um, that this is an effective way forward or an effective mindset, um, even if it isn't something that, although I would argue that meditation can provide some pretty immediate benefits, um, right. isn't something that would provide immediate relief from the objective struggles that people of lower class right. classes are facing. Right. As for substance abuse, um, the whole point of the integral framework is to take, is to be able to provide a framework that can take truths from any area and find some way to incorporate those truths into this bigger picture. And under the general category of cleaning up, there are an enormous number of methods and practices, some of them very conventional, which is fine, we'll take whatever works, wherever we can get it. Some of them are new and been added, but they do work with um, what could broadly be called emotional problems, including substance abuse and um, domestic violence and uh, any of these areas. So the area of cleaning up does very aggressively deal with those issues. Um, and it's important because cleaning up and waking up and growing up and opening up and showing up, again, work different areas. They don't do the same. So it's important to have a cleaning up access in any overall growth process that you might undertake. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to become a master of cleaning up. You don't have to become a great psychotherapist or anything like that. You just generally want to recognize certain signs or signals that you are getting out of touch with some aspect of yourself or some shadow material is becoming unconscious in you. And if you can just spot those, then we have a series of exercises that can help anybody with almost any shadow issue reintegrate that shadow issue into themselves. And we call it a three, two, one process. Well, one of them is called a three, two, one process. And what that does is it takes any symptom that you have. It could be depression, 
could be anxiety, it could be interpersonal problems. Um, you think your partner wants to get involved in having an affair, um, or you have a new boss and you hate him because he's so over controlling, or any of those types of issues that can upset you from conventional ones like I've got a new boss and he's way over controlling two very serious ones like substance abuse. Um, and what we do with the three, two, one process, for example, is if you, let's say, have an overblown reaction to your new boss because he's so over controlling and you don't feel that you're over controlling at all, but your boss is, and you can't stand that. So you actually end up hating your boss. Well, you might be, everybody might hate your boss as well, but probably not. I mean, you might be one of the relatively few who actively hate your boss. And so what the three, two, one process does is it takes whatever is bothering you and it talks to it and as third person and then moves it to second person and then moves it to first person. Because the idea is that the only reason that your boss's controlling activities upset you is because you have some of these controlling activities yourself. You become unaware of them and projected them onto him then you can't stand him, which is really your own shadow material. And so when you set your boss down in the empty chair, which just means the place that you're going to talk to your problem, and you start dialoguing with your boss, why are you so controlling? Why are you so annoying, why do you hate me, and so on. And you talk back and forth with your boss. And so you might ask him, why are you so controlling? And then he might answer, and you would, you would be the person answering this, because it's just you and your imaginary boss. And so you ask a question, and then as your imaginary boss, you answer, well, I dislike you because you don't work hard enough. And therefore, I have to keep on you as a controlling um, endeavor. And then you go back and forth and talk with the symptom, the problem, the, the shadow. And the more you do that, the more you start to identify with the person who's answering as your boss. And so you'll start to, as you go back and forth and talk to him for 10, 15 minutes, you'll start to actually get a feel for the controlling nature of your boss because you're acting as this controlling person. So you're adopting these controlling facets that you dislike. And the more you do that, the more you're turning that third person 
thing that you don't like into a second person, you, that you're actually in dialogue with. And the more you do that, the more you start to realize what it is that you've projected onto that person. And so the more you become that controlling boss, then the more you're taking that issue back, the more you're reintegrating, the more you're realizing that, wait a minute, I'm the controller. I've been talking like a controller for the last 10 or 15 minutes, because, and I can start to feel the controlling nature of my own side. I don't like that in me. That's why I got rid of it and projected it onto somebody else, like the boss. And so the three, two, one is locate the problem, talk to the problem, and then be the problem. And that takes that shadow back from third person into second person into first person. And when you are well done with this process and you've realized that, wait a minute, this controlling quality is something I possess and I have to come to terms with that. I don't like it myself. That's why I'm repressing it and projecting it onto other people. So that's just one example of a cleaning up process. Um, and by the way, it's, you're taking an it third person object and converting it back into an I or first person. Most people don't realize that Freud himself they, they think that Freud used terms like ego and id. So when he was asked, what does psychotherapy do in the psychoanalytic version, he famously said, where id was, their ego shall be. But Freud never used the terms ego or id, not once. They were added to his translations by his official translator, Jane Sprocky, because Sprocky thought it made Freud sound more scientific to use these Latin terms, ego and id. So he just punched them in. The terms Freud used were the actual German pronouns for the I and the it. So, and that's the way he would talk. So when he said where id was, their ego shall be, what he really said was where it was their I shall become. And that was exactly taking this it third person thing that you don't think you have and that that other person does and taking it back into your I, your own self. And that's exactly what is in a sense, it's what all good forms of psychotherapy do. But we have a lot of other um, specific programs that we work with people that have substance abuse or something along that line. And then as for your second question about what to, how to help the poor, that's clearly a difficult issue because it, whenever we're talking about the, the poor, we're talking about the whole economic structure. 
and how to change that. And that's at least as difficult or more difficult than changing the educational system. So, but I would say, and you hinted at it, that at least one of the things that any individual can do with any uncomfortable position that they are in is take a meditative stance towards it. So it, to the extent that a person can sit back and just witness what's happening, then they tend to gain a certain freedom from what's happening. So the, the stance of the witness, the transcendental witness is, I see the mountain, but I'm not the mountain. I have sensations, but I'm not sensations. I have feelings, but I'm not feelings. I have thoughts, but I'm not my thoughts. I'm the pure seer, the pure witness of all of those. And to the extent a person can get into that stance, then they're not grabbed by their pain. The pain doesn't have them, they have it. And this is why Zen masters who get deeply into that process will notoriously have surgery without even anesthetic because they are so into the pure witnessing that they are not the, any pain that arises. And that, that can clearly be very, very helpful. It won't put food on your table, but it might give you enough relaxing break from the turmoil to allow you to regroup and, and maybe um, head out on, on some more productive and fruitful endeavors. Thank you. Sure. Okay, I have another, I, I, okay, I also don't know how to articulate this question. Um, so another thing uh, that I thought about a lot while reading is, is emotions and my emotions specifically, um, which we've obviously assigned like positive and negative meanings to different emotions. Um, but I think about like how they influence my development in terms of like the, the stages of like developmental consciousness. Right. Um, and so, for example, when I think about like the things and the people that I love who I recognize as having contributed to to my being um right. and i also recognize that i often don't think about the negative things or the things i hate and how they've also contributed but um specifically with love um there's kind of this reminder as i'm reading the book or like when i sit down when i did sit down to read um that everything has contributed to my being right. um and even if it's not obvious the things that are that I identify as as others have also contributed to my being um, because my ego and my, myself like creates that otherness. Um, and so in thinking about that and that kind of reminder, um, you kind of have, in order to justify loving these people and these things, um, you have to love everything and justify loving everything. Right. Um, I don't know, it's just this, this weird thing for me to think about and for me to recognize in my everyday life and it gets a little frustrating in moments when i'm like i'm not i hate this right now and it's like very obviously just my projection of of those emotions and like the fact that i have not overcome that and so i'm just wondering if you have any 
thoughts or, or tips on that? Yeah. Well, love is a very complex human emotion. And I, I think this is especially true because it's one of the emotions that can span almost the entire spectrum of consciousness. Um, because what we were looking at when we looked at cognitive development and SES, we were looking at um, a self-identity. So the self starts out just identified exclusively with its own organism and bands to that very strongly. And then when it moves into pre-operational, it can start to expand. It can see other people and identify with them and in a sense, love them. So it's not just loving itself, but it's starting to love other people, even though it still often confuses itself with those people and has sort of anthropomorphic or animistic or egocentric notions about them. It's still uh, more love than the pre present, the previous stage. Then when it gets up to concrete operational and it can actually take the role of other, then it can actually love another person largely for what that person is for themselves. Because in concrete operational thinking, remember one of the experiments was taking a doll and have it point to three different mountains and then asking what color it saw and it was only at concrete operational that the child could actually say, oh, I'm looking at all three of the mountains, but the doll is looking at just the green mountain. So it can start to actually reconstruct what another person's perspective is like. So in other words, they can actually start to see you and Therefore, they can actually start to love you. And that's a genuine expansion of love. And then as we get into formal operational, it, your identity expands again. And it expands from trying to treat all people in your special group fairly regardless of race, color, sex, or creed, to being able to, with rationality, treat all people in all groups fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And so love is expanding again at that point. And so love is also the mystics maintain that love can continue, of course, into the transpersonal dimensions into dimensions of waking up because states of consciousness that include everything, embrace everything, in a sense, love everything because they're embracing them within this caring and folding grasp. And that's known as love. So love has often been taken as a, one of the main important paths to a union with spirit or with God. 
So even the New Testament maintains that God is love. And in, if we interpret that as a higher stage spirit and not just a lower mythic entity, that's very true. And so love is a way that you can connect not only with people around you that might have helped a lot or circumstances around you that might have helped you a lot, but it's a way to essentially connect with any of your levels of being and awareness, including up to God, where you have a love that you might expend to your partner. Um, and then when you get to a psychic level, that love expands to the whole world and you feel um, a oneness with the entire universe. And then by the time you get up to unity with spirit, then that's your one with the ground of all being. So it's the same love in a sense, only it's, it, it gets shaved down, so to speak, in lesser levels, but it's still connected to its source, which is a primal loving ground of all being. So love is a very important distinction, very important emotion to be in touch with. And the fact that we talked about a lot of higher levels in cognitive terms, I pointed out that I was only going through the levels in cognitive terms, and I wasn't including emotional intelligence or really moral intelligence or anything like that. But as cognition in create, creates greater, wider self-identities, it's also allowing love to expand into those greater, wider identities. So your capacity to love increases and gets greater and greater. Um, and so that's an important aspect um, of love. And it doesn't mean that, again, one of the difficulties with any developmental sequence is if you're on a lower stage, you sort of get judgmental about yourself, or you feel guilty because I could be higher. And, and that's not what the point of the developmental models are about. It's not to, to create a new type of guilt in you. It's just a point to deeper and wider and higher potentials that you do have available to you. And we know they're there because thousands of other people have grown through them. And we've tested them for it and found that to be true. As I said, some of these tests have, have been done in over 40 different cultures. So we have a lot of reasons to believe that these general stage possibilities are potentials that each of us have. Um, we tend to notice it if we're parents and have young kids because they'll grow through magic and mythic stages and you can notice them immediately. You can see how um, 
a three-year-old child thinks that the moon or the sun follows it because it's walking and it knows what it's doing and all of those kinds of magic beliefs um, will be stated very clearly by youngsters and adults mostly just sort of smile and go, oh, that's cute, oh, that's funny. But what's happening really is that they're starting their developmental growth and they are going through archaic and magic and mythic periods um, on the way to the emergence of rationality which is then they all of a sudden make sense and we can follow that. But these stages um, of most of our capacities are important, including emotional stages. And that certainly includes love. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was just gonna ask a, another question. So I was saying how like even before we had started reading this book or had this entire experience, I had never considered myself a spiritual person. Right. And I think that comes as a result of um, my parents aren't followers of any religion and their understanding of religion is strictly the mythic level yeah. of how it is conveyed um, to a wide degree because I can, you know, that's, that's sort of how a lot of um, religions can be expressed um, right. or practiced. Um, yeah. And so my question is like now trying to describe to them how important I think the under like spirituality is or how I consider myself a spiritual person now. Um, and just like the deeper appreciation and beauty and like presence and all these kinds of things. How do you rationalize that to people in general who are in a way kind of like gross reductionists and like see them, you know, expose them to the importance of the left-hand quadrants and why they're equally as valid as the right. Yeah. Um, that also takes a little bit of what you could, what we could call a miniature education um, to distinguish it from the, oh, the large educational systems that we talked about. But when you are talking with somebody and attempting to explain some viewpoint that you're having, um, it often takes a little bit of miniature educating because in order for you to fill out what you're trying to convey, you do have to give them some alternative idea that is being offered. Um, in this case, how to handle mythic, literal religions and what you want to say in terms of that. And so you need to just determine, okay, what would be the best approach for me to explain these differences? And, you know, take the best that you can come up with at that time and start out on a little miniature educational procedure and try to convey, again, in very gentle, non-aggressive terms, try to convey exactly the points you consider central for that conversation. Thank you. With all the talking about love, I think earlier in the term, me and Mr. Harris were having this conversation, um, 
and I have this question at the higher at those points of consciousness or spirituality when you get if you are to reach that level of um like godly love like god and right. all love is there room for significant others anymore um oh, surely um one of the um hardest things to understand when we get to discussing spiritual realities whether it's the ground of all being or even something like emptiness um is it's very hard to realize that none of those affect the actual manifestation or the appearance of all those objects we're now looking at. They all remain essentially the same objects that you're now aware of. It's just you're plugging it into a bigger background. And that background cannot itself usually be seen it's something that is the condition or the ground of all things that are seen. And so emptiness, for example, which is sort of the central Buddhist notion of a ground of all being, um, doesn't really mean without form or formless. Um, it, it technically means that this is an experience that you have when you have a real satori or real waking up. And it's not something that can be verbalized. As a matter of fact, um, Nagarjuna, who is credited with coming up with a central notion of emptiness, said, you can pick anything you want for absolute reality call it God, love, spirit, truth, goodness, beauty, it doesn't matter. Because without a direct experience of that reality, all of those terms are meaningless. So he actually developed a bit of a dialectic that demonstrated that no matter what term you use for ultimate reality, Again, it could be the good, the true, the beautiful, God, spirit, light, any of those. Call them all of those X. Nagarjuna demonstrated that reality is neither X, nor not X, nor both, nor neither. That sort of takes care of words in terms of your, <laughs> your chance to explain this in any sort of rational or linguistic fashion, but you can know it. You can know it by shifting the mode of consciousness you have to a mode that's non-dual awareness. So it's not a subject versus object. You're not standing back thinking something and looking at all the objects out there, but rather you are such a mirror mind of all these objects out there that you and the objects in a sense become one and in that oneness you will see this non-dual reality you'll have a direct experience of it so it's sort of like going to 
actually going to Bermuda and having an actual experience of Bermuda or simply having a photo book of Bermuda and looking at all the pictures of it. So he really wanted people to understand how important not merely talking about this ultimate reality was, but the steps you had to take to directly realize it yourself. And then you would know what it was. Um, but for just all of those reasons, if we take emptiness as an example, everything that's now arising is still arising, only it's arising on your own mirror mind. So in other words, you're not standing back from everything, you're reflecting everything. You become one with everything. And that oneness is the non-duality of subject and object are non-dual, mind and matter are non-dual, spirit and form are non-dual. And everything else, though, is essentially untouched. And this means you can still have a partner that you intimately love, you can still have children that you want to care for. You can still go to work each day at some job that you may hate or not. But all of that is essentially unchanged. What is changed is you are no longer separate from any of it. The entire universe is arising within you. Just as right now, if you just look at the room you're in, you're not really in that room. That room is in your awareness. So you're actually one with that room that's arising within you. Well, when you have that experience on a massive, huge scale, then that's what you experience. The entire universe is arising within you. And so your relationship with everything changes. Everything itself stays essentially the same. You're just no longer standing back from it and watching it. So then if you become one with all of these objects, then certain aspects of your relationship with them will indeed change. So if you are in a relationship with your partner and all of a sudden you feel that you're genuinely one with your partner, you can love her freely and fully. And that, if anything, that love would be increased. But you can still get into fights and still have problems and still have issues. But to the extent that you're in an enlightened mind, all of those issues will not be separate from you. They won't be something outside of you that's whacking you in the head or torturing you or causing problems. There'll be things that are arising within your being. 
and you are one with everything. We call it making room for everything. And that's essentially what this universal is called ultimate unity consciousness sometimes or cosmic consciousness. Everything is continuing to arise. It's just arising within you. So, but that, as I say, that's the hard part. No, no, no. That makes sense. Okay. I think that's the, uh, do you have another question? Or? Um, I have a silly question um, that I was just curious <laughs> about, um, which is, I guess it's not a silly, are you afraid of anything? If so, what is your biggest fear, if you're comfortable saying it? Uh, sure. It's, um, they're different than they used to be. Before I started on this path, um, when I would have fears, they would threaten me. And so I would be directly frightened by items that would threaten me. And they were, they included things, oh, in high school, it wasn't getting, you know, good grades. Um, I ran for student body president several times. And I won several times. But I also was afraid that I would lose. And that would just, that was crushing to me. Then the more I began this process of expanding my own awareness and so I could reach out and embrace everything. Items could still, let's say fear could still arise, but it wasn't something that was happening to me. It was just something that was arising and I would witness it. So I, have fear, but I am not my fear. So, um, like I have sensations, but I'm not my sensations. I have thoughts, I'm not my thoughts. I have feelings, I'm not my feelings. I have fears, I'm not my fear. And so it, it would cease directly attacking me because me was getting less and less and wider and wider and more embracing and more encompassing. And so I just simply felt that I was opening up and letting it all come rushing through. And when that, when I got good at that, fear would arise, but it was no longer frightening because I could just open up and let it wash through me like everything else. And that's the um, sort of one of the central notions of some of the higher um, reaches of meditation. Or read Ramana Maharshi, for example, would talk about these kinds of things and how um, he would simply the world simply washed through him as part of his big self, big mind, transcendental self. 
And that reached out and embraced everything in the manifest world. And therefore, nothing really frightened him anymore. Although fear could still arise, but it's, oh, fear over here, joy over here, happiness over here, a little bit of sadness over here. And they're just all arising, but they're not threatening to you anymore. And that's essentially the main difference in how fear and my own fears have changed. Thank you. Yeah. So I think that's the majority of our of our questions. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. This has been a really wonderful experience. Uh, it's been, we've been looking forward to it for months. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been wonderful. And I, we had, um, we got two hours done. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, it's wonderful talking with all of you. Thank you. Thank you. It was really a Thank pleasure. You. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Be well. Bye. Bye.